So today's reading is from Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 27, and can be found on page 1056 of most of the church Bibles. Uh, 1056, from verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have the children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. In the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were all married to her. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are the children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him more questions. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the topic of tonight's passage um, is something that I was confused about for a large chunk of my life. Uh, Our passage this evening is all about religion. And for the first half of my life, I assumed that Christianity was a religion like any of the others. After all, Christianity contains religious-sounding things, doesn't it? Like praying, reading your Bible, going to church, that sort of thing. And as a teenager, I thought to myself, I don't need any religion. And so Christianity remained in the background. But then uh, at university, I read through Luke's gospel after a friend told me to in my bedroom on my own, and I came across passages like the one we're going to look at this evening. And I saw that Jesus criticizes religion in the strongest possible terms. And reading passages like the one we're going to see this evening 
was the beginning of me seeing that I hadn't actually understood the heart of Christianity. See, this passage has showed me that following Jesus is something very, very different to religion. Perhaps you're here this evening and um, you find yourself in the position I was. You, it feels to you that Christianity is just a religion like any of the others, and it feels like a series of hoops to jump through. And if you're honest, you're quite happy with your life, and you don't feel this need to jump through hoops. Or perhaps uh, those, there are lots of us who um, would love to explain what the Christian faith is about, but lots of people just see us as religious types. And as, as much as we try and explain what Jesus is about, we find it very difficult to communicate the difference between us and religious people. Well, the passage this evening gets to the heart of the difference between religion and Christianity. See, the passage comes in the last week uh, before Jesus' death. If you imagine this last bit of Luke uh, runs over a week, uh, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and as we saw in the parable of the tenants, the religious establishment flare up and try to kill him. And their battle plan is to get Jesus executed. And the way they plan to do that is by tripping him up with some religious or political hot potato questions. Like, as we saw two weeks ago, shall we pay taxes to Caesar? But Jesus has just about enough of this. And from 21 verse 5, the passage we're going to look at next week, he says that religion, uh, as it's found here, is going to be over. The temple and all the Jewish religion that goes with it will be completely destroyed. And it does a few decades later. And our passage tonight shows us why why Jesus is perfectly in his rights to judge religion. Now, the way this passage works is to take three uh, people or groups of people and to put them in the witness dock. And we're going to hear each of their testimonies, and then we're going to hear the judge's verdict on each of them. And you'll see each of those um, witnesses in the back of your handouts. Uh, We're going to look at the Sadducees, uh, then the scribes, and then we're going to see the widow. First of all, the Sadducees, what I've called their sceptical religion. Now, your Sadducees, if you try and imagine them, they are your kind of um, intellectual sceptic. See, if you were to look for a Sadducee today, you'd go to a theological faculty of a top university. They're the type of person that is very proud, and they kind of sneer at Bible-believing Christians for being so naive and closed-minded. The sort of people that say to themselves, if they, they were as enlightened as me, and they understood the true nature of the Bible, they would see much of what they believe cannot be taken seriously. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because the Sadducees, we're told in verse 27, denied the resurrection. See, they just didn't believe there would be a world to come. And the reason they came to that view is because they cherry-picked parts of the Bible they agreed with. See, the, the Sadducees were happy with the law. They believed the five, first five books of the Bible. But when it came to the sort of more supernatural stuff, like angels and life after death, they didn't accept it. And these Sadducees, they come to Jesus with a theological conundrum. And it's designed to show the naive, naivety of believing the resurrection. 
Have a look at it with me. It's uh, in verse 28. They, they say, first of all, that Moses had a law where if your brother was married and they died, and they died without children, you were to marry your brother's wife. Now, if you've got brothers, imagine, you can get the picture, don't you? You would be responsible for marrying your brother's wife. Now, the law sounds a bit strange to us, but it was designed to protect widows before any welfare state or anything like that, and it was to ensure that the family line continues. And so they come up with this kind of scenario. Uh, They say, imagine that this happened with seven brothers. Uh, The first one married the uh, wife, uh, and then they died. Thanks to Tim Furlong for this. He spent most of Friday putting this together. Thank you, Tim. Um, The second one marries, uh, he dies. Uh, Third one marries, uh, he dies. Fourth one, you get the picture. Fifth one, sixth one, and so forth. And by the end of it, the woman has been married seven times. You imagine the family's getting pretty fed up of going to weddings and listening to (laughs) speeches at this point. But here comes the killer question in verse 33. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since seven were married to her? See, they think they've got Jesus in the crosshairs. Either he says, well, she'd be married to seven blokes, not ideal, or he says, ah, yes, perhaps in the resurrection that might happen, and he kind of falls into their trap. So how does Jesus get out of it? Well, first of all, he points out in verse 36 that marriage isn't part of the resurrection. See, in the life to come, it isn't just business as usual. It'd be like someone thinking that if I really work out and I become built, I don't know why I'm pointing to myself, this isn't an example, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I walk around the new creation with massive abs. It's that kind of thinking. See, the resurrection is a different life there won't be the need for marriage and procreation. But his second response, I think, is absolutely masterful. Uh, Why is it masterful? Well, if you were to prove the resurrection from the Old Testament, I wonder where would you go to prove it? I guess uh, there were some pretty obvious passages. Daniel 12, we looked at a couple of months ago, it explicitly talks about the resurrection. But Jesus doesn't go there. Look at where he goes in verse 37. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, if you look at your little footnote there, you'll see that the book he's quoting from is Exodus. Now, Exodus is part of the first five books. It's a book that the Sadducees had no quibble about. So Jesus is fighting them on their theological turf. But look at... um, uh, what God says about uh, what God says in Exodus. Here it is. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, ask yourself the question, where are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at this point? They're dead. They have been dead a long time. They're in the ground. But Jesus says, God says... He's still their God. See, here's the thing. The relationship isn't over just because they've died. Jesus says this must mean they live beyond the grave because God speaks as if he's their God, as if these promises are still active. See, the Sadducees thought they had a got your moment with Jesus. 
But Jesus uses one of their most familiar verses in their most well-known books and says, look, you've completely missed what it's saying. I love this. The the, the, um, Sadducees thought they had all the theological sophistication. You can just imagine them in the theological faculties over the centuries, kind of putting together this very uh, clever, watertight argument against the resurrection, proud as they kind of presented it to Jesus. But Jesus rips through their supposed wisdom like a knife goes through tissue paper. Now, what do these Sadducees show us today? Well, it's important to see with the Sadducees that they didn't just deny the resurrection as a mistake. See, denying the resurrection gave the Sadducees a get-out-of-jail-free card. See, if you say there's no resurrection, just imagine, then there's no judgment. And if there's no judgment, there's no reason to take Jesus seriously. See, all this theological sophistication was really essentially a protective wall where they could shelter against the claims of Jesus. Sure, Jesus, you say you're a king, you say you're going to judge, you say you're going to reign for eternity, but there's no resurrection. And so he must be bluffing. Perhaps some of us have come across the Sadducees' approach, or there might even be some of us here this evening who say this to ourselves. It's not that we kind of throw out religion altogether. We like some of what Jesus has got to offer. We like coming to church. We like hanging out with Christians. We even believe some of what Jesus teaches. But we've always got an angle or some insight that means we keep Jesus at arm's length. Some reason we tell ourselves that we don't need to take Jesus as seriously as he seems to say. Well, Jesus warns us and shows us the foolishness of that approach because he judges skeptical religion. Now, the second group here are the scribes, um, what I would call um, showy religion. Now, um, I had this moment where I written my, wrote my whole talk about the scribes, and then I read the NIV, and I realized it's translated teachers of the law. So um, my, hopefully I'll, they are the same thing, um, but my little essays got messed up, so I kept it as scribes. Anyway, um, the second group are the scribes, the teachers of the law, and we meet them in verse 39. Now, it's important to see these teachers aren't your university professors. Their job historically was to copy the Bible and to teach it to others. So think, not university professors, think me, clergy, that type of person. And these teachers hated the Sadducees because they did believe the resurrection. Uh, Look at their response, it's a comedy in verse 39. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. It's the equivalent of, yeah, come on, give it to them, Jesus. But Jesus isn't lured by their support because in this next section, he turns his crosshairs on them as well. Now, what's wrong with these teachers of the law? Well, Jesus reveals two things about them. First of all, he says they have a small view of himself, and secondly, they have a big view of themselves. First of all, they have a small view of Jesus. See, these teachers aren't the Sadducees. They actually believe the whole Old Testament, but they fail to teach the true Jesus from it. Where do we see this? Well, in verse 41, uh, Jesus asks them a question about one of the most famous psalms, 
written by King David. Now, as I read it, see how many characters you can spot. Verse 42. David, there's one, himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You spotted David? I gave you that one, didn't I? Who else? The Lord, great. Uh, And someone else? My Lord, yes. So uh, notice Jesus is saying here, look, there's not just one Lord, there's this other figure called my Lord. Who is this? Well, um, if you were asking these guys, they might think, well, it's David's descendant, one of his sons, who will follow him. But no Jewish father would ever call their son their Lord, unless they're in a completely different league. And Jesus' point here is saying that David saw who I really am. The Messiah isn't just some human teacher or human king, but someone with authority of God himself. See, Jesus is showing us that these teachers teach the Bible in a way that underestimates Jesus. See, I don't know about you, but um, I find this absolutely fascinating because the, the error here is very subtle, isn't it? They look like Bible teachers. They accepted the Old Testament. They taught the Scriptures. They would have had readings in church. They would have had the 30-minute sermons. But they minimized Jesus. They weren't prepared to go that step of seeing him as someone with all the power and authority of God himself. Now, why would they do this? We'll look at what follows, verse 46. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses for, and for a show make lengthy prayers. See, the scribes, they look impressive. They are the best preachers, dressed in power dressed in the sharpest suits. They love to walk around being called reverend or pastor, having paragraphs of praise on the back of their books. They love the best seats in church. They're at the top table of government functions. But their religion, Jesus says, is all show. They reel off these kind of lengthy, pietistic prayers about loving their neighbor whilst ripping their most vulnerable of neighbors off. Now, what I find fascinating here is how these two bits are linked. See, um, Jesus condemns their Bible teaching and their lifestyle. In fact, Luke writes it in a way that Jesus uh, condemns their lifestyle as he's speaking. It it kind of glues the two sections together. And the reason I think Luke does that is because we're meant to see that these are two sides of the coin. One goes with the other. If you have a low view of Jesus it will give rise to a big view of yourself. And if you really want a big view of yourself, then it goes with a small view of Jesus. You cannot serve two masters. If you want a big view of yourself, you will have a small view of Jesus. One of my favorite hobbies at the moment is uh, channel hopping. It drives, (laughs) believe it or not, it drives Claire, my wife, absolutely up the wall, but um, I just find it really fun just flicking through all the channels and I noticed a while ago on Freeview, um, we should hang out, it's great fun, um, I noticed on, uh, uh, on Freeview that a kind of Christian channel had been uh, added 
uh, which got me very excited. I'm not going to tell you which channel it is because I don't want you to watch it. And some of the preachers on there are absolutely impressive. I mean, they use all the best speaking techniques. They're good-looking. They're well-dressed. They speak to massive crowds. But as you listen to their message, it is essentially a self-help gospel. It's a big view of us. Now, the thing is, it's not that Jesus isn't mentioned. They hold up a well-worn Bible. But Jesus is kind of shrunk down from God's king to someone who's essentially a life coach, who supports our plans and our lives as we want them. I mean, I've never heard once, I've watched quite a few hours now, uh, I've never watched him presented with all the majesty of God who will reign for eternity. That message doesn't pack out the stadiums. And look at what Jesus says about that sort of preaching, verse 47, such men will be punished most severely. See, what might look impressive now what might look as showy, like showy religion will be gone tomorrow. But there's one more candidate for the doc, and it's a surprising one. She comes in 21 verse 1. Now, um, uh, let's read it together. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich pouring their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, many people, I think, read this incident as a kind of lesson in church giving, saying that if we give, we're meant to give an amount that kind of hurts us. Now, that might be right, but that, I don't think, is what this bit is about. See, that misses the context. See, look at where this widow comes She comes after a long line of religious people. Two weeks ago, we heard about the chief priests asking about taxes and Caesar. Uh, We've heard the Sadducees, and we've just thought about the teachers of the law. And then this woman comes, who is completely different. But she is the first one that Jesus praises for her religious devotion. But she is not the one you would expect. First of all, look at who she is. She's a widow. Now, widows um, were your archetypal, vulnerable person in the Old Testament. Think kind of asylum seekers today, dependent on food stamps alone. That's why Jesus condemns the teachers of the law in the previous paragraph, because they were meant to be protected. But look, secondly, at what she does. She gives two copper coins. I think it's the equivalent of 40p. Two Freddos. They're a chocolate bar. Very small. Hardly worth anything to the temple. But Jesus says this about her. She's given more than all the others. In fact, in the original in verse 4, it says she's given her life. See, she could have said to herself, I've not got enough to live on. I need to keep these two copper coins so I can eat. And she would have been perfectly free to do that. Or she could have given one coin and thought, I'll keep one coin back as an insurance policy. But she doesn't. She gives everything. She gives her life. And Jesus' point here is there is a chasm, a wide chasm, between the religion of his day and this woman. See, there is a huge difference between religiosity 
and being a follower of Jesus. See, her heart is closer to God than any of the other religious candidates you would expect. See, people might look like religious big guns. They might have a theology PhD. They might speak at the right conferences. They might wear a purple shirt. But none of that matters. What matters is your heart. And that is turned towards God. If you realize this, but God doesn't need your religious devotion. He doesn't need you to come to church. He doesn't need your prayers. He doesn't need your Bible reading. He doesn't even need your giving. He's God. He doesn't need anything. But He does want your heart. And He does want you to listen to His Son. And it's this poor widow, not the clever clogs, not the clergy, who actually gets this. And her devotion points to the devotion that Jesus will show in a couple of chapters' time. See, Jesus is about to carry out an act of devotion that doesn't look impressive by the world's standards. See, this Messiah, with all his majesty, with all his power, is going to give himself to death by wood and nail. His death does not have the theological sophistication of the Sadducees. Paul calls it the foolishness to the world. His death won't look very powerful like the religious pomp of the teachers of the law. Paul calls it weakness to the Jews. But what looks wise, what looks powerful is not what counts in God's economy because that very act of devotion is the very act that God reconciles humanity to himself. Let's think about a couple of conclusions as we finish. First of all, repent of religion. First of all, repent of religion. Now, um, hear me right on this. I don't want to chuck the religion word out completely. We don't have to become policemen and um, just leap on everyone who uses the word religion. There is a right way to be religious. But I mean we should turn from this type of religion, wrong religion, where we use religion as a way to make ourselves feel okay while we keep Jesus at arm's length. Or where we use religion as a platform for our own ego. Jesus condemns that sort of religion in the strongest possible terms. Secondly, look to the heart, not the hype. I don't know about you, but I think it's very easy to get lured by people with letters after their name or before their name, uh, people who are dressed in the religious stuff, uh, who have the persuasive powers, But Jesus says that is not what counts. Remember the widow. Remember her heart was towards God. That is what's commended. Thirdly and finally, praise the small things. See, this widow comes off by far the best and she's given 40p. And it's very easy, I think, for some of us to look at our own acts and think we're not that impressive. We're not going to be setting the world on fire with our ministry We struggle along, feeling that I don't really contribute much. But if you love Jesus, that is what counts. It's easy to look at others in church and think they're not very impressive. They don't seem to achieve as much as I do. But Jesus shows us what counts is not religion, not the show, but a heart that is orientated towards God. Let's pray.
I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Our gracious Heavenly Father, forgive us, we pray, for where we've been tempted and lured by the sort of religion we see here. Please give us confidence to trust Jesus with all our hearts and not uh, religion for our benefit. Please, our Father, help us if we've slipped into those ways to turn from them. And forgive us, Father, uh, and if we um, feel beaten up by those ways, Father, please give us confidence in what the Lord Jesus achieves for us. Please, we ask this in his name. Amen.